Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello everyone, this is Umar Hamid, your host, and welcome to the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategies, and advice on how to make you better, stronger, faster. Get ready for another episode. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the privilege of having Jonathan Spears here. He runs the Spears Group. Jonathan, I am jealous. You're in Florida. It's 80 plus degrees. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You know, if you were a decent guy, you'd shut the shutters that are behind you so I couldn't see the sunshine, but that's okay. So welcome to the program. And uh, one of the reasons I was excited to chat with you is you started in this business in 2010. And uh, it was after the financial crash. Uh, Florida was still probably in disarray at that point. Absolutely. So you started when you were 18. What made you decide on your 18th birthday to get your license? So for me, I went to college early. Um, I was a fast track through school. My nickname was Doogie Hauser, And at the time, I had no idea who that was because I was too young to remember. <laughs> but um, That's hilarious. I, uh, I was coming out of college and I remember you know, watching Lehman Brothers collapse and my my studies were specific to, to finance and business. And so my pursuit was you know, potentially going to a larger market, larger city, um, alternative area to, to kind of grow in entrepreneurial spirit. And at the time, we were still knee deep in the financial crisis. Uh, Florida in particular, Northwest Florida was being affected pretty heavily by the Gulf oil spill. And um, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, uh, that I was just uh, kind of reacting to the you know the two major catastrophes. Oh yeah, one just globally everybody, and then the other one that oil catastrophe was was massive. So you got two things going on. Yes. So how do you find your niche in that space? Well, it was interesting because at the time, you know, if you would have said, "Hey, I want to get into real estate," arguably it was the worst time to get into real estate. Uh, the least amount of um, activity in the market, the the largest contraction we've ever seen was that year 2010. So I started at the bottom. In hindsight, 10 years later, it was by far the best time I could have ever chosen to gotten into real estate because the level of problem solving through transactions, uh, whether they were foreclosures or HUD houses. You had a PhD in it? I got a PhD in it. Absolutely. And um, you know, we apply it to, to deals we do today. And um, it was a really good experience. Jonathan, so you entered the market. It's not the best time. There must have been a moment in that journey where you looked in the mirror and said, what the hell am I doing here? Like, did you have one of those moments? And if you did, how did you keep going? I can tell you when I looked in the mirror, all I saw was my baby face and that's what everybody mm-hmm. else saw. So I had to fake it till I make it till I was able to make it. And ultimately, um, you know, I go to showings fresh out of uh, college classes and they would say, you know, are you in high school? Like, how are you? What are you doing? And very quickly, uh, I realized that my gift and my ability to provide value to prospective customer was knowledge and understanding of the market and being able to articulate that really well. And so I was able to, to ultimately dip into the business um, by learning the business and being boots on the ground with data, uh, especially because the type of buyer profile we were seeing um, and being in Florida, you're almost exclusively a, a second home or you know, investment style property market, our area in particular. So I'm a Canadian and Canadians love uh, Florida. So lots of snowbirds coming out there. Oh my goodness. The biggest issue for me with Canadians at the time was trying to find them financing. 
Um, you know, RBC Which is tough is, to get a mortgage here for somebody uh, that's not in the country. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, um, you know, people were not necessarily flush with cash in 2010. Uh, they saw opportunity, certain investors with where the market had been in 2005, 2006, slashed in half or by maybe two to 300 percent. I mean, it was it was brutal. Um, but where I saw opportunity was being able to help somebody build a portfolio of inventory that uh, allowed a certain level of cash flow. And that's where I started my career. And I, I, I just kind of leaned into it. Um, I worked for a top agent in the market at the time. And I, I believe that was a great entry into learning the market because um, like we talked about earlier, you know, people can get in their own way. And I certainly didn't have all the answers and I was hungry for knowledge. So being able to get under somebody else's wing that uh, not only had lived through the height of a market, but also pioneering the, the low lows was uh, advantageous and, and also gave me just a perfect base foundation to work from. What was the name of your mentor there that you worked for? I worked with a guy named David Conart, and he operated a company called White Sands Realty. So David, there was probably a couple of moments where he gave you some advice at critical times. Like what were two, three pieces of advice that he gave you that really helped you lean into this? So um, some of the best pieces of advice, and he gave me a lot, was to slow down and pay attention to the details. And as salespeople, we're so busy on our treadmill um, trying to handle leads and contracts and all the above, especially when you're starting out. You don't have a team of people doing that for you, typically. Um, you know, you've got folks that rely on you from um, point A to, to closing. And for me, I was flying by the seat of my pants. I was in a reactive style business, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but, you know, ultimately we were fielding calls on listings that David had that were foreclosures. And the profile on the other end were investors. So he gave you this piece of advice for a lot of people getting stupid advice like that is like, what do you mean slow down? Yeah. So getting that advice and actually having it be meaningful for you, was it like immediate you said, okay, whatever you're saying I'm doing, or did it take you a little while to really kind of go, okay, slowing down is better? It still takes me a while <clears throat> to figure out that slowing down is better because my tendency uh, is to is to fly and to keep moving. And yeah. um, the reality is, is when you slow down, you begin to understand the detail of what you're doing and all of the mechanics of a transaction, whether it was understanding a certain paragraph in our Florida state contracts or um, understanding the process that uh, a bank would require in order to submit an offer successfully, because you could, you could write up an offer, you could have a ready, willing, and able buyer, and your offer never get reviewed because you missed a blue signature on the form. So yeah. there, were, there were a lot of details involved in that type of um, transaction. And like I said before, I was so thankful to, to really get my start in that field because that experience, uh, as it mirrors deals that we do today, seems so much more difficult. Brilliant. I was actually doing this really amazing interview. And if you get a chance, go back on the podcast. Uh, the woman's name is Elaine Northrup. And she started 47 years ago in this business. Oh and she was saying oh that God. when she started, it was like a contract was two pages and a handshake. Yeah. And you did it. Now it's like, you know, a volume, a text worth a contract, which is like quite complicated. Yeah. So at 2016, you decided to get uh, an admin person. And my guess is that when you got that admin person, you wished you would have done it sooner. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. So what's interesting, um, just to kind of give you a, a <clears throat> more specific timeline, when I got my license, I didn't start selling immediately. 
So in 2010, I got a, I got a real estate license. I was essentially hired on as an assistant. And I worked doing broker price opinions for banks, uh, essentially just plug and play with data. But then right. I, I would plug and play with data. I was able to start to process and understand the data that we were fueling um, to, to some of the largest banks in the nation. And that same data that provided value to them was data that I was able to put in my memory bank that I could mm -hmm. you know, respond to a prospective buyer. That became your superpower. It became my superpower. Absolutely. So after doing that for, for probably a good two to two and a half years is when I really started to get the opportunity to transact. And by transact, I mean, um, you know, taking phone calls, fielding leads and starting to transition to sales full time. Um, and the market also started to, to grow with me as I started to grow, which uh, was also very helpful. But we started to see that that contraction begin to level out and slowly but surely expansion. So were you chomping at the bit to kind of get in front of clients? Because I know sometimes you're like doing the background work. And uh, what was that experience like? Like wanting to move forward, but your mentor saying, no, no, slow down, learn this stuff really well. Like, what's that like? Well, I think he was brilliant in the sense that he understood if um, he was going to help propel my career in that specific direction, that I needed to have a very solid base uh, underneath me. And the market at the time was still very tough. Um, you know, today I feel like one, in, one out of two people I meet in our area are transacting real estate. I mean, they're licensed. Um, it's, it's probably the bread and butter in terms of career. We've got a population of, um, you know, 15,000 people in Destin and, you know, you've got four or 5,000 licensees in the area. So it's pretty robust. And, um, you know, for me, uh, having somebody at the helm that was able to be there for advice and uh, help me navigate certain scenarios was imperative to building my career. Brilliant. So 2016, you start building a team. What was the vision you had versus the reality that you found being a leader, getting a team? Well, let's go back and just talk real briefly about reactive selling versus proactive sure, selling. Absolutely. I worked for this company, um, White Sands Realty, for five years. So essentially from 2010 to the end of 2014. And at the time, the inventory we were transacting on was really uh, uh, all, all areas of the market, all sectors, all price points. Um, but most prominently, uh, you know, sub 500,000, which for our market is, um, you know, below the median. Um, what I gravitated to was the luxury end of the market. And what I enjoyed, understood and could articulate was the high end. So it started nice. as I was doing bank BPOs, we get this stray luxury opportunity, you know, that stray million dollar foreclosure, and I would just delve into it. And, you know, I started to see my eyes light up and inside internally, I knew that um, that's the direction that I wanted to go in. And so I started studying that market, uh, not exclusively, but I had such a broad knowledge base from that superpower, as you called it earlier, of information that when I did get the opportunity to, to potentially represent somebody in that space, I was able to do it very well. And it snowballed. So I essentially transitioned from being an assistant to a single agent. Um, and when I decided to transfer over to Sotheby's International Realty, um, it was a big step for me to go from reactive, where I was answering phone calls on somebody else's listings, 
right. to, you know, being dropped into an empty space and saying, all right, sky's the limit. Let's see what you can do and having to be proactive. So I went from my phone ringing off the hook because the office would forward phones to me exclusively to uh, jumping into a large pond where I was the very small fish trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get one of these minnows? And that required me to pick up my phone and make calls. And so Sotheby's has incredible tools, resources, but also a name that's recognizable in the luxury space. So I saw the opportunity of being able to leverage that in particular to, um, to, to grow my business. And I think I transitioned in January of 2015. The year prior, um, I was 23 years old. I did 24 million in sales with 54 transactions. Wow, that's um, huge. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, was, it was, thank you so much. It was solid. Um, you know, that year that I transitioned, I was actually 22 when I, sw- when I switched over the year I changed to Sotheby's, I turned 23 in January and I didn't sell anything from January to April. It was crickets. Yeah. Oh my gosh. For me, it was just such a shock to go from that reactive form of selling and ultimately prospecting, right? Going from reactive to proactive prospecting and, and trying to penetrate a market that everybody's after. Uh, and being, you know, Doogie Hauser young with a baby face. Um, but that year, that first year with Sotheby's, I was solo and I did 47 million in business. So not only did I do almost double the production the year prior, but um, my average price point went up by double. So nice. the, the transaction volume was about the same 50 to 55 transactions. I was doing it all by myself. I was the top single agent for the company, the the entire firm that I was at. And I think the guys that owned the firm were just kind of like wide-eyed, like, who's this kid coming in here and disrupting everything? And for me, you know, the the perspective of growth was a very simple um, denominator, and that was time. And I had to find a way to leverage my time, which is why I decided to go with a team model. All right, so let's back up a little. We're going to come back to the team in a moment. Yeah, certainly. So you've got several months without any sales. Yes. So there must have been a few moments during that journey where you're like, "What's wrong with me? Did I make the right move?" So tell oh, me yeah. about one of the dark yeah. times and how you got, how you kept going, because a lot of agents, no matter what business you're in, give up at that point. What kept you going? I think for me, you know, I had a lot of belief in myself, and I knew that you know, the prior year at 24 million. That was the year I decided to make a change because I outproduced the top producer, the, the, the individual that I was working for. And I did that on half a split, right? So not only was I incentivized financially, I'm out on my own. Um, you know, I have these great opportunities at my fingertips, but I had to figure out like in the trenches, okay, h- how is this going to work? And it wasn't going to work with people magically calling me. You know, my marketing was was great, but I didn't have any listings, you know, so I saw an opportunity to, to, to leverage the Sotheby's brand in particular, whether it's um, you know, with buyers or sellers, but more prominently with sellers. And I started to, to make the calls, um, cold calls in particular, to, to agents and, uh, or excuse me, not agents, to, to clients and owners that had properties that I thought I could inject some value with them on. And you got to think we're in an ascending market at this point. So you call somebody and the sales pitch is, and hey, I'm Jonathan, I'm with Sotheby's. I have this incredible tool belt. I went back to that superpower of data and I said, hey, this is Jonathan Spears. I just want to let you know, 
And we sold a pro I say we, it may have been somebody in my office, but I said, we sold a property in your neighborhood and it was a record for the last 10 years. And they start going, what do you mean record? You know, I, I thought we had record unemployment. What, you, what's going on? And so it opened up a dialogue to create a relationship. And so I focused on creating those relationships and slowly but surely I started to see this snowball effect. So how much money did you, uh, plus or minus, uh, just say a little bit, a lot, uh, when you went on your own at Sotheby's, your bank account, was it healthy enough for you to kind of breathe easy or was it like, oh my God, this has to work soon? Um, it was, it was, uh, it was healthy enough, but you, you know, the old saying is nothing is ever enough. And so, Absolutely. so I wasn't starving, but in my mind I was my mentality every day when I woke up is I hadn't eaten. And I'm hungry. That's a good place to be. So let's go to 2016. You are deciding I need some more agents with me. What made you pick the first agent? And did you make a good move or a bad move? Don't name names. No, I won't. Um, <laughs> I definitely won't. So um, 2016, so I had an assistant and um, I was looking to slowly but surely grow both an influence on the listing side, but also seeing as I accumulated listings and my focus was serving sellers at the highest possible level, I would get buyers that would inevitably come in. So there's an old saying in the market that he who controls the listing controls the market. And yep. in that regard, I had control of certain sectors of the market at the time. But I wasn't, I wasn't able to really spend much time working buyers. And so I realized that in order to capture market share and do more, I needed to have uh, some additional help to do so. And I really thought that my assistant could do that. And so we tried to play with scenarios where the assistant that I had was working leads and, and you know trying to close business, but then something on the list side may fall through the crack. So this trial and error process began, was able to begin. Um, for me, when I hired my first independent agent, which was late 2016, uh, it was somebody who had prospected me and they said, hey, look, I see you're having a lot of success. I really want to have a coffee. Let's talk. And um, I, I ended up just saying, yes, we had a coffee and uh, I saw an opportunity not only with uh, this agent being able to field leads, but also being able to to bring new business in an influence in an area of the market that I wasn't already in. And so that that team strategy uh, really developed where you pull your head out of the sand and you go, okay, um, I can only do so much by myself. And really, as a single agents, we operate with blinders. You know, we only see what's in front of us and you hire one other person and the, the dynamic of perspective shifts and the influence not only grows, but there's that compounded effect. And um, I started to see the success of that and slowly but surely wanted to grow it. So the job of the leader is, I think, threefold. Number one is to have a kick-ass, amazing vision that other people yeah. go, I want to be part of that. The second one is the culture. How do we build a culture where people go, I feel at home yep. and I wouldn't want to work anywhere else and any of the people get attracted to it? And number three is long-term shareholder value. Right. So the culture piece of it, what is the culture you're trying to develop in your company mm -hmm. so that no matter who a customer deals with, they get the same feel? Right. How do you think about that and how do you execute that? So culture really comes from the top. Um, when I affiliated with uh, Sotheby's International Realty, their culture was a shock to me because I came from a very small office. Um, the mentality was just so different. 
And uh, it started to really ingrain in me, um, you know, just like the, the old saying leaders essentially eat last, right? Like you put your people right. first. I started to see that from the top down. And so I have two competing brokers. They're not really competing. I see them collaborate and that culture of collaboration in particular is what essentially leads to a team. Um, my team members are not employees. They are valued partners. And so my mindset had to shift with the culture in particular is that, mm -hmm. hey, this culture of collaboration and the mindset is these are not, you know, buyer's agents or listing agents. These are, these are partners and this is a partnership. Let's say Sotheby's will pick another area of the country, wherever we want to go. Let's say Boston. They could have two teams in Boston that both have 10, let's say four admins, six agents. Yes. But the vibe of each team would be dramatically different. Absolutely. Even though they're in Sotheby's. So what's the vibe of your team and how do you ensure that that stays even if you get more people coming in? So first of all, our Sotheby's affiliate in Boston is amazing. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are great teams there. Um, but I agree with you completely. They're, you know, our team is completely different from other teams within our own firm. Um, you know, our sales volume accounts for almost 20% of the business that our firm does, which is, uh, you know, something I'm very proud of. And, you know, when you look at the way you operate a team versus the way your competing broker may operate a team, it's going to be different inevitably. We all have different leadership styles. And so I had to really figure out who am I as a leader? And, you know, what is it that I really see in terms of a vision? And you had mentioned earlier, how do you get a team member to buy into a vision? And yes. so my first and foremost goal was to be a top producer in the market. And so 2016 was the, yes, yep. 2016 was the year that um, I became the top producer for our entire market, um, not just Sotheby's, but the entire Northwest Florida market as a whole. And um, I was very young, um, you know, 24, being a market leader, you know, average age of an agent in general is mid 50s. So I'm half the age of the average. Uh, people looked at me and they were just kind of scratching their heads going, who is this guy? And I sort of loved that. And I saw it as an opportunity to, to you know, collaborate with other agents outside my team, um, you know, co-listings and opportunities that really open doors to get in certain segments of the market. But as I kept going back to, to the need to, to grow with the team, um, I just, it was, it was purely from collapse in my own business where I was able to shoot bullets through certain areas that we weren't doing well and these blind spots that we could avoid. And that was adding certain team members. Brilliant. Know where the gaps are. Fill higher to your weakness. Absolutely. Jonathan, if there was one piece of advice, somebody thinking about starting a team right now, what would that one piece of advice be? If you're looking at starting a team right now, you have got to focus not only on the value that somebody would, would bring to your team, but the value that you would bring to your team member. And I think that's the mindset we have to stay in as a team leader, because there's so many different dynamics and situations that you get into. Um, and like you had mentioned earlier, you know, today I'm a better leader than I was in 2016 and 2022, I'm going to be a better leader than I am in 2020. Inevitably, my, my goal is to grow, um, both internally and externally. And, uh, that value piece is so important for not only retention, but also culture. 
And so when you think about somebody that you would hire uh, and you're looking at, at um, you know, how are they going to fit in? It's really, how are you going to fit with them? And how are you enhancing their life and their business? Um, so that's what I look for in building a team. Uh, I've slowly but, but surely built one that's uh, extremely efficient, one of the top teams in the nation, uh, according mm-hmm. to real trends. But, you know, that's how we continue to grow. We're slow to hire. I say quick to fire. I mean, I've, I've retained almost everybody we've hired over the last five years, which I'm very proud of. That is brilliant. Jonathan, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I learned a lot and I'm going to keep an eye on you, see how you guys are doing. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 